You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. That's when you really get the confirmation that, hey, this is something that is worth looking at a second time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Jane Lee. She's a trust and safety architect at SIFT. And we're going to be talking about the Digital Trust and Safety Index. All right, Joe, before we get to our stories this week, we've got a bit of follow-up here. Uh, what do we What do we have? We have uh, a guy I communicate with regularly, a buddy of mine named Ben from Microsoft. He says, glad to hear you guys talking about phishing simulations on hacking humans. I wonder hmm. if rather than doing the phishing simulation promising bonuses or surprise vacation days, that they would send out a message, an email that says, hi, everybody, we're going to give you a dollar amount bonus. And we want to remind you that we will never, ever make you click a link or open an attachment to receive a bonus or award from us ever. It's just going to be added to your paycheck automatically. Please remind your teammates too, and then give them the bonus and do that a few times a year at random intervals. Uh, hmm. it, it doesn't have the simulation benefits, but I wonder if it would build awareness, at least against that particular threat, just as effectively without raising, uh, risking the bad feelings of, so it was just a gag and we're not getting the bonus, right? Right, right. Yeah, it's the, it's the ultimate carrot instead of stick thing, I guess, right? Right, right. I... When, when Ben said this to me, I said, this is absolutely a great idea. Uh, mm. I think I think this would be very effective. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I went on to say that I don't think the benefit, you know, the bonus needs to be a huge bonus, right? If you if you gave people $25 or $50 bonuses just so that you could have this opportunity to send this out, I mean, you could you could get around the bonus scam by paying an extra $25 to $50 an employee or even mm-hmm. a $10 uh, $10 gift card. Let's say, hey, everybody, we're going to be sending out gift cards. This is just a reminder that we'll never ask you to click on a link. Right. right. It's the don't click a link bonus. Right. Don't click a link bonus. Right. <laughs> right. So, right. Click here to learn more. Somebody will be around <laughs> to ask you if you want an Amazon gift card or a Starbucks <laughs> gift card or whatever. You know, right. but, you know, it's a uh, I think I think this is a great way to this would be a great way to to go about Reminding your employees that you're never going to send them a bonus notification in the mail that's going to require that or in the email that's going to require them to uh, to do something that is mm-hmm. just going to take place. That's how the process works. You remind your employees of the process because that's really the underlying problem here is that employees are not aware of the process of how right. this happens. It doesn't come up as a red flag. Go, no, that's not how this works. Uh, <laughs> so they go ahead and click on the link. Yeah, I, I think it's not a bad idea. I, I would. I think it'd be interesting if um, an organization could sort of A B test this and see, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you have different offices or different divisions or something, and see which tracks more successfully. It's, it'd be an interesting experiment. Yeah, I think it would be low great. cost. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump into some stories here. Uh, Joe, why don't you kick things off for us? Dave, my story comes from Kelly Eckerman, who is a news anchor at. KMBC in Kansas City, Missouri. Hmm. Got one of those K call signs because they're ah, west, yes. west of the Mississippi. 
That's right. You ever been to Kansas City, Missouri? <sighs> I can't recall. I, uh, I, I, have to, I, have to, I am really bad at remembering places I've been uh, over the years. So I, I, I will. And I get, I don't know, am I condemning Kansas City that it wasn't more memorable? <laughs> uh, <laughs> if I was there, I, I can't say that I was, Joe. I, I have been there a number of times and I truly enjoy the city. It's a great city. Mm. Um, but there's something interesting about Kansas City that's coming up this weekend. And okay. it's, uh, it's, by the time this show drops, the results will be known, but the Kansas City Chiefs are in the playoffs. Oh, okay. Right, And they're playing a game in Kansas City. Uh, and this is has to do with football, or as the rest of the world calls it, American football. <laughs> right. Um, and they're going right. to be playing the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, okay. By the time the episode drops. The, the rest drops, of the world, by the way, where when they hold a world championship, they bother to invite other countries. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Uh, our World Series only includes one other country, and that's Canada right. <laughs> in baseball. Uh, but I digress. I, <laughs> I digress, uh, as I often do here. So back to the football. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs are going to be playing the Steelers, and as I say often, scammers do not miss an opportunity to profit. And one of the ways they're going to profit is by selling fake or bad tickets to these events. Mm. So here's the thing. Uh, have you been to an a, a NFL game recently or ever? Uh I have been to well, I have been I have been in the stands uh, as a ticket holder to exactly one NFL game in my life. I have been on the sidelines as a TV cameraman. And, okay, uh, more than that, but that's uh, different. It's been a while. Yeah, right. You get a pass for that, right? You have you do. Yes, yep. yes. It's quite exciting, actually. The way um, I'll bet it is. I've never been on the sidelines of any major sporting event, but I also haven't been to an NFL game in a number of years. But my wife and my son-in-law went to an NFL game, and they bought tickets online through a resale site. And mm. these tickets are essentially just barcodes, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. when my when my son-in-law printed out the tickets, he just printed them out of his printer at his house. Mm -hmm. That that you know, here are the tickets. These are them. Show these things, and they they scan the barcode. So what happens in these scams is a lot of times somebody will sell the same ticket multiple times. Right, so it actually is a real ticket, but if you're not the first guy or, or girl to get to the game, right? You're not the first person that shows that ticket to the to the ticket agent at the door. You're out of luck. Oh, I see. Because that so I could buy this. Yeah, I could buy this ticket from you. Right. You could sell it to multiple people. I could go online and check to make sure that this ticket is authentic. Yep. And it'll yep. come up as saying, "Yeah, that's a real ticket," but unless I get to the game early, I'm not getting in. Right. Yep. If I sell that ticket to like five or six people and, you know, if you're going to sell it to one person or you're going to sell it to two people, you might as well sell it to a hundred people. Right. Yeah. It hmm. doesn't matter how many people you sell it to. Mm -hmm. um, so this article has some interesting uh, things in here on what to do. So if you're purchasing tickets, use a reputable website. There are reputable websites out there. I'm not familiar with them off the top of my head, but mm -hmm. uh, they, they actually have ways to do this. Uh, and, and I'm not sure what the workflow is, but but go ahead and, and check it out. Use a reputable website and avoid using general item websites. Like don't buy tickets on Craigslist, right? Mm -hmm. Don't buy tickets on Facebook Marketplace. Chances are those are going to be scam tickets. If you're mm. selling online, do not post pictures of your tickets because those tickets have the barcodes on them. And if I can scan that barcode, uh, if I can look at that picture and get a good enough read on the barcode, even though you've 
you've only shown a picture of it and you're thinking the, the threat model is, well, they're going to print out a picture. It's going to look like a picture. If I can read that barcode with a barcode scanner, I can print out a new barcode and I can completely right. fake up a ticket. Right, right. Uh, trivial to do that. <laughs> So don't I'm just imagining my my I'm imagining myself having stolen your ticket and I end up in the stand sitting next to your wife. Like, right. Oh hi, <laughs> <laughs> hi Joe's wife. Uh, right. No, I didn't steal that ticket. Funny. <laughs> well, what a coincidence. <laughs> right. Well, Joe couldn't get in, but I left right. him at the gate because I'm not missing the football game. <laughs> yeah, Joe's out in the parking lot listening on the radio. Right. <laughs> Waiting for me to come out. Right. Uh, yeah, she is a big football fan, actually. They also recommend that if you're selling it online, go ahead and use a reputable website, one of these sites that uh, that monitors thing. I don't know how the – again, I don't know how the workflow works. Uh, if purchasing mm-hmm. or uh, or selling via an electronic payment system, know the refund, the refund policy of that payment system like PayPal or Venmo, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times that money is just gone. Uh, I think PayPal has a little bit more fraud protection. Like you can say this is a fraudulent sale. I didn't – you know, the ticket – didn't work when I went to get in and I'd like my money back. Uh, I don't know that you can do that with Venmo or with things like Cash App. I think it's just gone. Uh, it may be. I don't know. Maybe they have some kind of fraud protection. I don't use those apps enough to know. Uh, yeah. Other tips. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, right? So if you're seeing <laughs> tickets for a playoff game being sold at face value uh, when there's an opportunity for people to sell it for a little bit of a premium, uh that might be a tip-off that you're not looking at a real deal. If it's a cash deal, inspect the money. It isn't uncommon for someone to wrap counterfeit bills in real bills. So a lot of times, I guess they're talking here about uh, about when you're selling the ticket. If you're going to sell a ticket, uh, make sure you're getting real money uh, if you're getting cash. Uh, and the final piece of advice here is extra fees paid on reputable websites might be irritating, but they are worth it for the hmm. security that you get. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that interesting? You know, I've never been, I've never had the situation where I've had a a bad ticket where I've been turned away from something because my my ticket wasn't, you know, correct. Right. I, I, yeah. But at the same time, I I feel like I most places I could probably social engineer my way in because uh, because I'm in that uh, you know because we're in that middle-aged guy zone where we could say, oh, gosh, my wife already went in and she had the tickets and she's already in there. And they'll, they'll probably just say, yeah, go ahead. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. I, I get the feeling if you tried that in an NFL game, they wouldn't let you in. Yeah, um, probably. Probably. Yeah, that's true. Every year yeah. at the Super Bowl, there I can't remember what the guy's name is, but there's a guy who says he tries to socially engineer his way into every single Super Bowl and he does it like 80% of the time or something like that. Huh. I gotta find find out that what that who that guy is. Maybe we can interview him. <laughs> yeah. My take is that uh, football is better on TV than in person, and baseball is better in person than on TV. I agree with you one hundred percent on <laughs> on both those statements. I th- yeah. I think football is a, is a is a game that grew up with television, and baseball yeah. is a game that grew up without television. So uh, I think baseball is uh, is is much more fun in person than it is watching on TV. Even though I still enjoy watching on TV, uh, but football, I have been to two preseason games and have absolutely no desire to go to another football game ever again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I just also football. It seems like football people are not my people. 
Uh, <laughs> the, the rowdiness of the crowd was a bit too much for me, the game I went to. But, yeah, when, uh, when my wife and uh, son-in-law went to that game, we actually flew down to Dallas because they're Dallas Cowboys fans. And one of the mm. things they said was that, my wife says, that is the loudest place I have ever been. And I'm like, I have no interest in going to that. <laughs> Just... She says, yeah. you got to go. I'm like, no, no, I don't. I don't want to go to that. I don't want to be sitting there listening to the loudest thing you've ever heard for right. three hours. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it doesn't sound right. like It's fun. like when somebody says, oh, oh, God, smell this. Oh, <laughs> oh. Why, why, why would I do that? Right. <laughs> All right. Well, we've digressed down many uh, rat holes here. Yes, we <laughs> so have. Let's let's move on. Uh, let's move. Of course, we'll have uh, links to uh, that story in our show notes. Um, my story this week uh, first came to my attention uh, from Twitter, and this is uh, a gentleman on Twitter whose name is Costa Elefario, uh, and. Um, We'll have a link to his uh, series of tweets. It was also uh, followed up with a story over on The Verge written by Sean Hollister. And The Verge story is titled, Apple's $64 billion a year app store isn't catching the most egregious scams. Um, So I'm going to go back to Costa's uh, Twitter thread here. And he starts off his thread by saying, how to make $13 million on the app store. Uh, (laughs) That caught my eye. <laughs> right. You're so like, I, I'd like to make $13 million. Sure. Why not? Um, so here's the, the process of the scam. So I'm going to sort of paraphrase what Costa has laid out here. He says, first, make a basic app people might be searching for. And the example he uses here is an app called Volume Booster. All right. Sim- right. Simple app. Does one thing. Makes things on your phone louder. Right. right? I'd love that, to have that for my earbuds that don't play my music loud enough. Yeah, and and you know what? There's that's there's utility in that app. That's a right. useful app. All yep. right, but here's where it goes off the rails. Step two: charge an absurd ten dollar per week auto renewing subscription. That's easy to sign up for, but much harder to cancel. Okay, so the utility of this app is uh, it, it has value. I don't think it has five hundred twenty dollars a year in value. Right? right. No, it does not. <laughs> okay. Step three: buy lots of fake reviews on a daily basis. Uh, so you go out to one of these review farms, you pay them, and basically they drown out all of the bad reviews uh, about how your app is scamming people out of money by being an auto-renew $10 per week app. Right. Here's where it gets stickier. Because this app is making so much money by buying all these fake reviews, it becomes the 135th highest grossing app on the App Store. <laughs> bringing in $13 million since 2018. Wow. This thing has has actually done this. It actually brought in $13 million. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Apple has featured this app many times because of its success. Okay? Really? Now, yeah, yeah. Now, let's think about this. $13 million. Apple gets 30% of that. Right. $13 million, right? right? So we'll get to that part of of the story in a second. Yeah, I've talked Um, about that before. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's a perverse incentive here. So Uh so we'll get to that in a second. Um, So the developer makes this app, has... uh, Actually has utility, but, you know, people get here. Here's this. Here's where this scam gets me. And here's why I think it's particularly interesting for this show, which is that to me, apps like this get people when they're in the midst of having an immediate need. Right. Right. I wish my music were louder. 
I've been in this situation where I've said, I wish I could convert this to a PDF. Yes. You know, right? Yep. So I go looking around for PDF app and you find an app and it says, convert your PDFs free for seven days. I said, well, this is great. I only need to use this once. Mm -hmm. I'll install this app. And then what happens, Joe? I forget to uninstall it. Seven days later, kablooey. Right. <laughs> right. I'm paying. They get me for at least one of the charges. Now, I will say Apple is very good about refunding charges. If you go back and say, hey, you know, I didn't want to pay for this. They're very good about that. Right. Um, but I think what needs to happen and what's lacking here is that Apple should have a mechanism in place for app developers where they are required to have a notice pop up when an app transitions from its free trial to its paid mode. Right. I, I think it pops up and says, hey, this app is about to transition from being free to being paid. Do you want to continue and start paying for this app? Yes, yes. or no? Right. To me, that would fix this problem. Uh, and they don't do that. No. And I, I can't help wondering... Do they not do that because, for example, in this case, Apple has made 30% of $13 million. Right. That's like $4.5 million. Yeah. Right. Yeah, which, you know, I mean, that's the money Apple has in the couch cushions, you know, at, uh, <laughs> right. at one infinite loop compared yes. to the money they make. But still, when you look across the app ecosystem, it's real money, and you, you, can, you could understand how Apple would not be incentivized to crack down on this. Yeah, Apple is absolutely not incentivized to crack down on this. Um, you know, go, going back to your to your statement, Apple makes all kinds of requirements of app developers for how the app looks and feels and behaves, right? I mean, mm -hmm. You can't get an app to uh, open with a different look and feel uh, approved in any Apple ecosystem. You just can't do it. Uh, so right. why not why not do two things? Why not do what you suggested and require that they notify you through a through a standard interface that the app is about to transition from the free trial to the paid subscription? And then why not also standardize the methodology within an app that allows a user to unsubscribe from the service? Mm -hmm. Those are the two things Apple needs to do here, and they're not doing it. And I think they're not doing it. I, you know, the the pessimist inside of me, the very large pessimist inside of me says they're not doing it because they're making the $4 million from this app. And this is just one app. There are probably hundreds of apps out there like that. Yeah, sure. Pretty yeah. soon you're well, talking about real money, Dave, as you that's like right. That's right. Well, and to Apple's credit, I mean, they do send out notifications for uh, annual subscriptions. For example, mm -hmm. I, there's a, a handful of magazines that I subscribe to through Apple and they alert you a month ahead of time that says, Hey, this magazine's about to, you know, re up. Uh, here's just a heads up. If and, and if you want to cancel, here's how you do it. So they do it in that case. Um, I, I just wish they would do it in this case. And yeah. I, I'm left scratching my head. I guess the optimist is me, in me is left scratching my head why they don't do this. The pessimist in me knows exactly why they don't right. do it. Yeah. Right, right. Because they're incentivized not to. Right, so exactly. I, I guess in terms of our listeners, I mean, I, I put out a little question about this on Twitter earlier today. And, and uh, one listener wrote in and said, you know, I set reminders for myself about these sorts of things so mm. that I don't forget to unsubscribe. I think that's a good idea. Uh, anytime you sign up for something that has a subscription that you're concerned about, go ahead and set yourself a reminder so that you remember to delete that app before, right. um, you know, before you get hit with that fee. Yeah. I, I, my policy is that when I see that this app has a free trial, I uninstall it and look for another app. 
Um, yep. uh, the other thing you can do is you can look for a, uh, you know, even even if you have a uh, a farm that is producing tons and tons and tons of five-star reviews for this thing, you can still go and look and see what the one-star reviews say, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Costa has a bunch of those on here uh, about, you know, if you if you actually look at the one-star reviews, nobody pays for one-star reviews. Nobody pays for four-star <laughs> reviews or three, right, or, you know, right. nobody pays for anything right. but five-star reviews. Right. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story from The Verge as well as to uh, Costa's uh, Twitter thread there, both worth checking out. Uh, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener who would like to remain anonymous. Go ahead and why well, this is just a letter that this person sent in about a situation at uh, their place of work. So why don't you go ahead and read the uh, the letter that they sent to us? It's it's an right. interesting interesting situation. It says hi Joe and Dave. Just had an interesting one at the client I'm working at. They want to supply me with a laptop and want to quote set it up with the least amount of downtime possible end quote. And thus, IT have sent me a message over Teams requesting my logon details. I know from other colleagues getting these messages, they want a username and password. Mm -hmm. Naturally, I assumed it wasn't right, as firstly, the new laptop is news to me, and no one told me I was getting it. This just rings true of phishing stories. Uh, And why would IT need my own username and password? They should have them. A quick message to my gaffer, the boss, it's legit. I've had to politely raise that you can't have an IT info security policy of don't give out your password unless it's us because we're okay. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully this will only make things better. Keep up the good work. So this is the first time we've had a catch of the day that isn't a scam. This is an actual policy. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a very, very bad policy. Um, Right. So it's – here's the thing. Uh, he says, shouldn't they have my username and password? They don't have your password. They have a hash of your password. Right. But they shouldn't need your password. If they're in the admin role, they can say, guess what? We're changing your password to something then work that we know, and then we're going to use it, and then we can set up your laptop. And then when it's mm-hmm. time for you to do it, we're going to ask that you change your password to something for you to use. That's how this should right. work. This should not work right. with asking a user and uh, a user for the username and password over Teams. And you may think that Teams is a secure channel over which you can ask for this information without much ramification. But if someone compromises your Office 365 account, they're going to get access to your Teams account. And if they if they do that, the next thing they're going to do is move laterally, and they're going to be asking people for usernames and passwords over Teams. And if you set that up as a as a as a business practice, people are going to be much more willing to do that, and then you've yeah. got real problems. No, uh, this is absolutely something that should not be normalized. Absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. So, uh, anonymous person who sent us this, uh, if you want to let your people, uh, you know, listen to this or, or or say you've got, uh, you know, two guys here who who know a lot about security, saying don't do that. And uh, my question is, for your security team or for your IT team, how many people do you need me to t- tell you that this is a bad idea before you believe me? Because whatever that number is. I'll get that number of people for you. (laughs) Right, right. Well, so here's a question. Suppose you're working at an organization and they come to you and request this, and it is legit. What 
I mean, you know, it's a legit request. In other words, it is an authorized request. Right. Uh, do you refuse the request? I mean, how much of a stink do you make with something like this that you know is wrong and has security implications? Is this a hill to die on? I, I, that's a that's an excellent question. And in fact, I'm reminded of my very first sales job um, when when I got out of college. I remind everybody I had my brief and failed sales career, but my first job was working <laughs> with a value-added reseller. Um, and it was, uh, you know, the, the owner of the company was sitting at my computer trying to set something up because he was doing a lot of IT work because that's what the company did. And the head of tech support was standing there and the head of tech support turns to me and goes, what's your username and password? And I go, uh, yeah. and the owner of the company turns around, looks at me and very curtly says, username and password. And I, I gave it to him. And the reason I gave it to him is because I'm sitting here with the owner of the company getting ticked off at me uh, about being concerned about giving up my username and password. Now, this is back in the 90s, right? Uh, yeah. So, you know, I'm early in my career. Do I make a stink about this on my second or third day on the job? I don't think I do. <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, different time too. Different yeah, time. Different time. I don't know that I make that I make a stink about that now. I mean, I think I mention it now. I actually, you know mm -hmm. what? Now in my current role, I absolutely make a stink about it, right? Because I'm supposed to be a yeah. security expert. <laughs> so, right. I mean, right. if I give them my username and, and password, the next words out of their mouth are, "Yeah, pack up your desk, get out of here, you're fired." <laughs> right. You're, you're not the security expert. We thought you were. Um, right. But uh, you know, it, it, it really depends on your situation. This guy sounds like he's um, he's you know, not in an IT, not in an IT position. Uh, maybe he is, I don't know, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think you have to weigh, uh, weigh the decision, but you definitely make mention of it. You say is first off you, you do do what, what this anonymous person said and you ask your boss, Hey, is this right? Is this legit? Oh yeah, this is how they do it. And then you say mm -hmm. they shouldn't do that. That's bad practice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Um, right. You know, and then, right. and then, then you make the decision as to whether or not you actually comply with the practice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks to our listener for sending that in to us. Uh, we would love to hear from you if you have a catch of the day for us or a story you'd like us to consider speaking about on the air. You can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Jane Lee. She is the trust and safety architect at SIFT, and our conversation centers on the Digital Trust and Safety Index. Here's my conversation with Jane Lee. Yeah, so we every quarter we release a report on um, current trends and trends basically that we're seeing throughout the industry. ATOs, otherwise known as account takeovers, have been increasing at a staggering rate I think our data showed that between April 2019 and June 2021, we saw an increase in 307% of account takeovers. And I think, you know, given the pandemic and all the, the related data breaches and um, really newsworthy things that are happening lately, um, it's just created the perfect environment for, for ATOs to breed. Yeah, one of the things that your report highlights is this fraud ring that um, you're naming Proxy Phantom. Can you give us some of the details about them? Yeah, so basically what the Proxy Phantom fraud ring is, um, our data science team observed an unusual number of login, login attempts 
hitting several of our merchants and then looked into it further and saw that they were also rapidly cycling through IP addresses at the same time. What makes this different from traditional ATO is the scale and the sophistication at which they're doing it. So credential stuffing is not a real, it's not a new thing, but the way in which the hackers are trying to obfuscate their IP addresses um, is becoming newer. And of course, that makes it a lot more difficult to, to detect for the average merchant that might not be leveraging the appropriate technology. That's what made this um, fraud ring just really stand out to us. Can we dig into some of the details here? I mean, when, when you say that they're rotating through IP addresses, um, how, how are they enabling that? What's the technology that they're using? Do you have insights there? Yeah, so what they are doing is they're leveraging um, scripts. So they basically write scripts to automate the, the password and username com- combinations. Um, this is otherwise known, it could be known as a brute force attack. But basically they have a database of credentials that have been acquired from data breaches from phishing attempts. And what they do is with this particular fraud ring, Within a short period of time, they they just started mass testing these credentials across across different merchants within the SIP network. I think our data shows that they use about 1.5 million stolen credentials, and we saw up to 2,600 attempts per second, login attempts per second. So that gives you an idea of of, of the scale in which they they've been operating. And what does this look like to a merchant when when they're the subject of this sort of attack? What, what what's going on on their end? So, if a merchant has the right technology to notify them when something like this is happening, they will see this as a really abnormal number of login attempts, um, and that goes for both login failures and lo- uh, successful logins. So, they first see that anomaly. If a merchant does not have that right detection it can go undetected. So you won't really know until the rightful owner realizes that a bad actor got into the account, withdrew some funds, or you know performed some other sort of illegal, nefarious activity. Uh, one thing I would like to add to that is with these credential stuffing attacks that, that the Proxy Phantom fraud cluster was conducting, you don't necessarily see that downstream event. By downstream event, I mean, you don't necessarily see a transaction right away. You don't necessarily see an update password event right away. This makes it all the more difficult for merchants to, to know that, that there are these bad actors doing bad things to their legitimate users. Again, making the, the problem all the more challenging to, to detect for, for a lot of merchants. Hmm. So this group is willing to to bide their time. They they have a certain amount of patience. Exactly, and um, you know, I I believe you spoke to one of my teammates, Brittany, who talked about a lot of the dark web, Telegram forum chatter that happens. And what we do see is this type of information, these tactics being traded. They're being exchanged on these forums. And so what they do is they they'll, they'll validate a batch of accounts, say. With the credential stuffing attacked, they they validated 100,000 user accounts. Those then are put up for sale on the dark web where there are buyers that are willing to buy and get a, get a payday out of them. So when someone is using this sort of technique, as you say, they're, they're rotating through IP addresses, how do you go about detecting that? And, and what are the limitations of, of some of the types of detection that people are using out there? Yeah, so I would say the limitations of how 
a lot of merchants that I speak with are are detecting them is, you know, back in the day, I was at Facebook at, at one point and what we would do is do more one-to-one type of blocking, right? So um, what we see, this is not the case anymore, but what we would see is, you know, you see uh, suspicious activity coming out of an IP address, then you temporarily stall that IP address or you temporarily block that IP address. But of course, if you have a network like the proxy phantom fraud ring that is cycling through IP addresses um, in a very short period of time, this becomes all the more challenging. You're constantly playing a game of catch up and, mm. um, and inevitably you're going to end up blocking the wrong set of users because IP addresses, you know, frankly are not the best thing to block. You don't want to, it's a very risky thing to do because there can be good users tied to them. So what unfortunately ends up happening is the fraud teams are just constantly, you know, reactively blocking IP addresses as they're servicing. If you don't quickly address that, you know, once the attack is over, then ultimately you're going to block a bunch of good users as well. So what's the solution then? I mean, what what are some methods that are effective here? So what really sets these successful merchants apart when it comes to combating rings like the Phantom Proxy fraud ring um, is leveraging the right technology. You don't want to constantly be playing the game of cat and mouse where you're being very reactive. And with a lot of the more traditional rules-based systems where you're setting if this, then that type of rules, that has become ineffective. Why? Because as mentioned, you have these really, really rapid attempts that are very sophisticated in, in breaching your systems. What has been shown to work is leveraging the right technologies. So machine learning. Machine learning can tell you very, very granular things about a particular type of login. So when you have something like the proxy phantom network, you have a bunch of um, user accounts that are connected to a particular IP network. And that IP network has also done a very similar type of activity somewhere else um, within, say, the SIP network. That's when you really get the confirmation that, hey, this is something that is worth looking at a second time. It's fascinating. So the the machine learning is capable of uh, I don't know detecting patterns that uh, would be hard for a human to see. Absolutely, and you know, it, it not only is machine learning helpful in detecting those patterns, but um, the right tooling will also be able to give provide that information to teams that that are trying to fight these types of attacks at a, a larger scale. What about uh, advice for the consumer here? If I'm someone who's making use of, of one of these services and, and this is a, a target for these credential stuffing folks, what are the tips for folks to best protect themselves? Yeah, so for a consumer like you and I, making sure that you practice proper password hygiene. I know it's annoying, um, but really leveraging things like password managers to have a diverse set of passwords The reason why I say this is because if you're involved in a data breach, let's say uh, a really notable one recently was T-Mobile. Our data shows, um, and this is confirmed by uh, the most recent Google security study that they have, but over 65% of users recycle their passwords across different platforms. And so if, again, say you got breached or your account was um, compromised at a place like T-Mobile, Every merchant should assume that about 65% of their users are at risk because 
they may have reused their password somewhere else. So from a consumer perspective, make sure that you, again, practice proper password hygiene. The other thing that I would recommend is to opt in to two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication. A lot of merchants have this as an opt-in only feature, but again, this will protect you if if there is a suspicious login that takes place on your account um, to be notified or to have that extra lever, uh, the extra layer of protection, which also leads me to the merchant side, right? If you are a merchant, really leveraging things like notifications, security notifications, 2FA, MFA, those types of technologies would really help in protecting both you and your users. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, is do you think it's fair to say that as a provider, if I'm a merchant, that um, that 2FA is is familiar enough with people that it, at least making it an option for them uh, isn't going to seem so strange? It's not going to seem so foreign anymore. Actually, it really depends on the vertical. So say in the fintech industry or financial services, you have users that are a lot more comfortable with having that extra layer of friction, right? Because why? They have actual tangible money attached to these accounts. We do see a little more resistance in other industries. In those cases, you have more passive options, such as security notifications, which of course is that passive email that you send to a user. If I suddenly log in from a brand new device, my Facebook will tell me, hey, can you confirm that this was you? If not, please report it here. And so right. you can, as a merchant, you can decide how much um, how much you want to to add that extra friction. Me as a consumer, I don't mind if I get that passive notification. In fact, it helps me know that the merchant or the platform that I am transacting on is doing their due diligence to make sure that my account is safe. All right, Joe, what do you think? Dave, there's a lot of information in this interview, and, and unfortunately, not a lot of it is very surprising. Yeah. Uh, account takeover is up 307% in just a little over two years. That's uh, alarming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the actor that, that Jane talks about, this proxy phantom that they're calling it, is doing account takeover at scale now. They're attempting 2,600 login attempts a second. It's a lot of login attempts. Uh, and what's amazing is that they're still using credential stuffing and they're rotating IP addresses. Mm -hmm. Um, if you don't have the correct solution in place to find or to detect this kind of activity, you'll never know that you've been compromised until something happens. Uh, especially with, with the way these guys are acting and, uh, you, you pointed out that these guys are a little bit more patient than the average, average threat actor. Uh, they may wait. They're not going to act right away. Uh, one of the, one of the things she talked about is they, they will not change passwords uh, on people. Once they have access, they're not going to go in and do a, a password change because that locks the user out of the account and is a red flag and lets things, it immediately lets anybody know something's gone wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want them to know that, you don't change anything. You just maintain the access. Uh, IP blocking is great, but not when you're dealing with an actor that goes through IP addresses very quickly. Jane points out that you could... Uh, you could very well lock legitimate users out. Uh, She talks about the if then else model and then, uh, and compares it to like machine learning. The if then else model is very easy to defeat. And uh, because it's clear, rigid Boolean logic, you know, Um, 
you know, if you do this, then if, if one thing is true, then, then behave this way. If another thing is true, then behave this way. Uh, and malicious actors have demonstrated a, an uncanny ability to get around that. Uh, they, they want to satisfy the true condition, uh, to get, to get the result they want. And they're very good at doing that. And yeah, that's where machine learning is going to come in and, and help hopefully make things better. Jane puts some great numbers behind our incessant nagging about password managers. <laughs> uh, let's. I want to walk through this T-Mobile breach that she mentioned. So yeah. let's assume that you run some system. I don't know if it's a website or a service or something. Uh, but let's look at the percentage of users that have mobile phones. We can probably assume that's pretty close to 100%, right? So that's mm-hmm. multiplying by one. So it, it doesn't have any effect. So you don't even need to need to consider whether or not somebody has a mobile phone. You see the T-Mobile breach in the news, and you go and you quickly do a Google search like I did, and you see that T-Mobile has about 25% of the market. Uh, so you can assume that 25% of your users are on T-Mobile. 65% of the users, this is the number that came from Jane, 65% of the users reuse passwords when you find mm. uh, So now it's just a matter of multiplying 25% of 65%, and you find out a number uh, a little over 16%. 16% is... Probably the percentage of people is an estimate of the percentage of people on your system that are vulnerable to a credential stuffing attack because of a breach on another company's site. Right. So, you know, depending on how many people you have, if you have 10,000 people on your system, that's 1,600 people. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of people. I mean, 16 may, may seem like, oh, that's a low percentage, but it isn't a low percentage. It's a pretty high percentage. Right. Um, Again, for protecting ourselves, we hear... Dave, again, we hear multi-factor authentication and password managers. <laughs> Two great things that go great together. Uh, That's right. You can't go That's wrong right. if you're using this. It's, it's the best thing. Even if you're just using the SMS multi-factor authentication, that absolutely stops a credential stuffing attack in its tracks because they those are just automated attacks that don't go through the process of, of any social engineering. They're just brute force attacks. And an SMS notification will stop that kind of attack without getting any further. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to set that one aside and go, we'll devote a little more attention to this one if we deem it is necessary. So Mm -hmm. if you can use a more secure multi-factor than SMS, you should absolutely do it. Uh, Otherwise, if it's the only thing available to you, go ahead and use it. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Jane Lee for joining us. We do appreciate her taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.